Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Kings 5, 1 through 14. 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. I knew a, a pastor who would get up nearly every Sunday, and he would pull out, his sermon notes were on pieces of paper about this size, and he would open his Bible and he'd pull out two, three, four sermon outlines and say, I just don't know what I'm going to preach today, and he kind of rifle through them and put two or three of them back, you know, and keep one out, and that's what he would preach, and just say that's not how they teach you to do it in seminary, okay? Uh, there was a, I won't say a lack of preparation, but a, certainly a lack of certainty about what needed to be said that week. And um, for the first time, I, I know that uncertainty. Normally I get up here and I have the passage and knew what the passage was, and yet this week has been a struggle to figure out what to say from Second Kings 5. Uh, a number of things have gone on this week. It's just, it's just been a week. Um, so coming to the passage and thinking about it, and okay, in my head there are things that need to be said, and there are things I want to say, and there's what Scripture says, and some Sundays that all lines up perfectly. I mean, they just, they just meet and boom, and it's this super eclipse of, of, of God saying this is it. And some Sundays, one of them's over here and one of them's over there, and then you got the third one here, and that's Scripture, and i got to always come back to that. And whew, It's just been a week. Scripture doesn't change for us. We've got our memory verse on the, the screen. A uh, couple of extra blanks, and I've got my cheat sheet in case, so I don't have to stop this time. So uh, let's uh, all say it together. Lord God of heaven, of Israel, see? I should have used my... Lord God of Israel, there is no one like you in heaven above or on earth below who keeps the gracious covenant with your servants who walk before you with all their heart. 1 Kings 8.23. I'm going to get that before we get through 2 Kings. You watch. 2 Kings. It's a fairly popular story. This part of Kings is Elijah to Elisha. They're just, they're, they're great. I told you last couple of weeks, this would make an incredible movie. It might have to be like a three-part movie or so um, to get Elijah and all his stuff moving toward Elisha. But in this passage, even though Elisha is doing a lot of the, the work, Elisha isn't the point of this passage. Uh, healing isn't the point of the passage, though that's the climax. Naaman isn't the point of the passage. The point of the passage is the departure of God due to prideful rebellion. Now, that's a little subtle 
until you begin to step back and think about what this passage says, what it doesn't say, and specifically when and to whom it was written. Now, obviously, it was written after all this stuff happened. This is an historical book. It's not a prophetic book, so it's not telling us what's going to happen. It's telling us what did happen. It was written after Judah, the southern kingdom, was destroyed by uh, Babylon in 586. Jerusalem was destroyed by Babylon in 586 B.C., and everyone was, or most everyone, was taken into exile in Babylon. And this book was written then. It was compiled then. The uh, author, probably one author, from Joshua all the way through 2 Kings. So Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuel, Kings, probably all had one author because they just kind of go one right after the other. Written sometime around or a little bit before 550 B.C. So they'd probably been in exile about 30 years. And that's who he's writing to. He's writing to, the, to, to uh, these Israelites, these Judeans, God's people in exile, to explain to them what had gone wrong. Why are you in Babylon? This is not your home. Why are you here? Well, here's why. Because after 30 years, some folks have died off, some new people, uh, some have been born, who have, a lot have been born, who, who never lived in the promised land. They've heard the stories of the promised land. They've been told about Moses and, and, and the 40 years in the wilderness and Joshua and the, the judges. They know the stories, but they've never experienced it. Maybe they've only heard part of the story. So the author says we need a complete book of it by inspiration from the Holy Spirit. We need to tell what happened to explain what had gone wrong. Of course, when you explain what has gone wrong, the, usually the main purpose is not just to inform people, but to keep them from doing it again. Let's not do stupid things again, what could be the title of this whole series of, of books. So they write to warn against what has been done. But I think even... There's, there's an even more specific, yet broader, but again, slightly more subtle purpose. It's to encourage the people to still be the people of God and to evangelize even in exile. What we're going to see as we move through this passage is that everybody involved, except for Elisha, that is faithful to the Lord either isn't an Israelite or isn't in Israel. The only one of God's people who is faithful is Elisha. Everyone else are people who are outside of the covenant, outside of God's people. We'll see that as we move through it. Just to give you an example of my struggle this week, the, the title of the message this week is The Blindness of Pride. The Blindness of Pride. That's the third title I came up with. A couple other titles. The God of Everywhere. That kind of covers it. The Failure of God's People. That kind of covers it. But I landed on the blindness of pride because it was pride that got them here to begin with. 
It was failure of God's people, remember? The whole series, failure and faithfulness. That's what really from Joshua through Kings is all about. Judges is one big book of failure. And the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord because there was no king in Israel. Over and over and over. Kings, a whole lot of failure. The king did evil, uh, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to his forefathers. The same as his forefathers. Over and over and over. And then as I prepared and as I worked through it, a lot of thoughts came to mind, as you can imagine. Some, some potential directions to take the message. Some thoughts as I prepared that I think are actually worth thinking about as we move through it, but really aren't the point. One, we can get so caught up in our desires and our preferences that we miss what God is doing. Oh, that read the, the minor prophets, the ones that uh, specifically uh, 7th century prophets and 6th century prophets, that would have been 700s and 800s, right before everybody went into exile. And hear them say, look, you're, you're fat and happy, you've got everything you think you want, but you know what you're missing? God. Compassion. Justice. Mercy. You've, you've got your desires and you've got your preferences, but you're missing God completely. That was a thought that I had. Another one, we can get so full of ourselves that we can't believe God would have others that follow him better than we do, especially if they don't fit in our political or racial or cultural circle. Wait, there are other Jesus followers out there that don't think exactly like me, but actually follow Jesus too, and uh-oh, they, they follow him better than I do. That was a thought I had. Another thought, we can be so spiritually arrogant that we expect God to be at our beck and call and to answer in the way that we think best. Over and over we see that from, from kings, the kings, from the people, when they will say things like, we've got the ark, go back into uh, Samuel. We've got the ark. We can't be beaten. The ark was just a gold box if God wasn't on it. Wasn't in it. Not that he was contained there, but if he wasn't the one they were trusting, if they were trusting the gold box, you know what they had? A gold box. They thought they were just the people of God, so of course, everything's going to work out. Everything's going to be fine. We're going to get what we want. And when we demand God do something, he'll do it. Because we're God's people. What we find as we read throughout this passage particularly, but throughout First and Second Kings and even throughout the whole Bible, is that God is not beholden to us. We are beholden to God. He does not act on our whim, at our command. We should act at His command. We are, at this time, I think, about 30 to 40 years from the end of the northern kingdom. 
We're in the, the late 700s, 760 or so, uh, I believe, when this was written, or when this is talking about, not when this was written, the time frame. And so it'll only be 40 or so years, 30, 40 years before the fall of Samaria, the capital city of the northern kingdom, and Israel as a country, and those 10 tribes that made up Israel will, for all intents and purposes, cease to exist. Israel had rejected God. They had rejected his prophet, prophets, and they had rejected his word. And this story shows them now that they are the, the, the southern kingdom, the, the, the folks from Judah, the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin who are in Babylon, shows them, hey, God can raise up followers from anywhere, provided that the witness of the people of God is faithful. So he doesn't really need you. You aren't God's gift to the world, Israel. Judah, you are merely God's instrument to reach people, even in Babylon. As a matter of fact, later on in the New Testament, the, the Pharisees are going to say something idiotic like, how are we not good people? How are we not going to heaven? We're children of Abraham. And Jesus said, um, God could make children of Abraham from these rocks if he wanted to. Ain't nothing special about you, homie. Calm down. And that's what we see in 2 Kings. We see the blindness of pride. We see arrogance. And we see God no longer where he is not wanted. Read with me about Naaman. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Aram, was a man important to his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was a valiant warrior, but he had a skin disease. Aram had gone on raids and, and brought back from the land of Israel a young girl who served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master were, the, were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his skin disease. So Naaman went and told his master what the girl from the land of Israel had said. Therefore the king of Aram said, Go, and I will send a letter with you to the king of Israel. So he went and took with him 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, and it read, When this letter comes to you, note that I have sent you my servant Naaman for you to cure him of his skin disease. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and asked, Am I God killing and giving life that this man expects me to cure a man of his skin disease? Recognize that he is only picking a fight with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent a message to the king, Why have you torn your clothes? Have him come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came to his horses, uh, came with his horses and chariots, and stood at the door of Elisha's house. Then Elisha sent him a messenger and, uh, who said, "Go wash seven times in the Jordan, and your skin will be restored, and you will be clean." But Naaman got angry and left, saying, 
I was telling myself, he will surely come out and stand and call in the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the skin disease. Aren't Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash, uh, wash in them and be clean? So he turned and left in a rage. But his servants approached him and said to him, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more should you do it when he only tells you, wash and be clean? So Naaman went down and dipped him in the, himself in the Jordan seven times according to the command of the man of God. Then his skin was restored and he became like the skin of a small boy and he was clean. Arrogance and pride all over this passage. We meet Naaman, and, and this is uh, the only time we meet him. Uh, the, the, this story in this chapter goes on to include him somewhat, but uh, this is it that I, I could find or remember. He, he is an example to us. He is an example to the folks in exile in Babylon. He's the commander, we learn, of a sometime enemy, or maybe even could have said most of the time enemy. Right now, at this point in, in, in history, when Naaman, they're not at war with Israel. They have been a long time. This would be modern-day Syria, if you're thinking of your map of the Middle East. That's who we're talking about here. Didn't get along well. Israel didn't get along with a lot of folks in that area. Um, clearly, there had been a time when Syria had, or, or Aram had gone in and fought and we learn that in verse 2, they brought back from the land slaves, and we meet one of those. But a commander of this sometime enemy, a commander who is great at his job, who is well uh, known, well known even in Israel, and he's got a skin disease. Now, some Bibles say leprosy, uh, some, some don't uh, just say skin disease. It probably wasn't leprosy. From its description, it's probably psoriasis. But back then, any physical blemish like that was scary. The, the assumption was, hey, this guy's either done something to earn this mark or he is contagious and going to give it to us, and they certainly don't want leprosy. That's a death sentence. So, Despite all of his military accomplishments, everything that he thought he had done, his, his popularity, his, his, uh, his abilities, he had this blemish that rendered him less than everybody else. Let's not forget he's Aramaic, he's Syrian, not, a, not an Israelite, not Jewish. And that's who we're introduced to. That's who this story starts with. So he's the main character, but as I said earlier, he's not the point. He's the main character to prove the point. Highly regarded, but he has this skin disease. Verse 3 introduces us to a faithful follower in exile. Now, we learn in verse 2 that uh, she is from Israel, a young girl, and she served Naaman's wife. She's a slave to Naaman's wife. And in verse 3, 
she says to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his skin disease. Now, we don't know what young girl means here. Don't know how old she is. I, I, I envision 10, 11, 12. Uh, the peace with Aram has been long enough. This was probably a, a girl who doesn't remember home much at all. But maybe she does. It, 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 it's, it's up in the air. Maybe she's, maybe young girl here means 18 or 19, and she's only been with them for four or five years, and she remembers vividly home. Regardless, what is her first instinct when this concern comes up? I know a God who can do this. Now, this is important to the, to the Jews in exile in Babylon because here we have this young girl, a young female slave in exile. She is not a person of position. If you compare Naaman to her, you've got him and you've got her in every possible way in, in the social and cultural strata of that day. They could not be further apart. And the writer by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells the people in Babylonian exile that this young girl in exile is witnessing to the power of her God. To this man who could care less about her God. little cultural background, and if you read through chapter 5, this will explain uh, him taking some, Naaman taking some dirt later on, taking dirt home with him. They believed that uh, the, the pagan cultures around Israel believed that gods were landlocked or even waterlocked. You had gods of this area and this region. You had gods of hills and gods of the valleys we saw in uh, 1 Kings chapter 20. If you think back to your Greek mythology, you've got Poseidon, the god of the sea. You've got... Uh, uh, Hephaestus, the god of the underworld. Everybody has their regions. Everybody has their, their, their abilities, their, um, their specialities. Israel believed they had the god of everywhere. <laughs> See, there's my title that I didn't use. That it didn't matter where you were from. It didn't matter your, your cultural uh, uh, leanings. didn't matter... Your, your nationality didn't matter, your race, they had a God who was over you and them and those people over there. Now, that didn't mean you served them, but it sure did mean he is in control of them. didn't mean they served him. Did I say that right? But it meant that he controlled them. And so we see a young girl in exile witnessing to the power of, of God. If only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him. Too many times I think we we are unwilling to tell people that we have the God that can do the do the curing. We're Maybe we're even uncertain that God will do the work that he has promised to do. 
New Testament makes clear, Paul makes clear, Jesus makes clear, we are ambassadors, we are messengers to a foreign country. This world is not our home. We are citizens of another world. This isn't it for us as believers. And yet we have a responsibility. We are in exile, and we must be faithful as this young servant girl was to speak to the world who is hurting, who does not believe in God, does not know who Jesus is, who does not think that Christianity has anything to offer them, and say, we know the one who can heal. We're going to get into this as we move through it, but when, when the healing was asked for, when they showed up, where God should have been, nobody knew what to do, except Elisha. The king didn't. When people show up hurting, and what they find is people causing hurt, they're not going to stick around to find out about the God that those people say they serve conversation just this morning a good conversation not a negative one where it was brought up they will know we are Christians by our love is that what sulfur knows about our church our love or are there people on social media gloating every time someone leaves our church faithful follower in exile. Naaman does what she says, listens to her. So Naaman went, verses 4 through 7, and told his master, told the king what she said. And so the king loads Naaman up with gifts, 150 pounds of gold. I don't know what gold is worth per ounce, and I'm not going to try to figure out how many ounces are in 150 pounds. I just know that I'm, that's 100 pounds less than me. That's a lot of gold. 750 pounds of silver. That's three of me. And 10 changes of clothes. Doesn't that not seem like it goes? I mean, a thousand sets of clothes with all that gold and silver, but ten sets of clothes. That must have been some good clothes. That must have been some Gucci or, or um, what's, what's expensive now? How old am I? Armani. Uh, I, I, I would hear and, and wax childish in my uh, speaking and say, that is some impressive drip. My son hates it when I try to use the hip words. And rightfully so. So he shows up with all these gifts to the guy who should know what he's talking about. Naaman says, hey king, I got all these gifts. I got a skin disease. I need to get this thing healed. And the king of Israel should be able to say, you have come to the right place. Let me tell you about our God who heals. As a matter of fact, I can't do it. But I know a guy who can. 
He has done some crazy miracles already. His mentor didn't really like the guy. Uh, he was kind of mean to my, uh, my daddy. But that's okay. He can do it. He, he, he brought fire from heaven that burned up water, man. He, he is God. Let me tell you about Elisha. And instead, he acted like he didn't have a clue. I don't know how you can be healed. What do you think I am, some kind of healer? As a matter of fact, he saw this opportunity to evangelize as an attack on the country. Oh, he's just doing this to stir up trouble. (laughs) Imagine someone coming to our church and saying, I want to know how to be saved. And they come from a different denomination. And we would have the audacity to say, oh, you're just coming in here to try to change our church. It was a rebellious pride of the king that said, and, and, and the, the country, and it had been for years, that said things like, we're God's people, we don't have to be faithful. And God said, I abhor your sacrifices and your worship services because you're not living for me. You're doing all the things that look like you are, but your life is not at all what you have called to be as my follower. His pride told him that this was an attack on him, not an opportunity to share the love of God with somebody. Our pride on any Sunday morning, whether you're in this church or some other church, our pride says that this message isn't to correct you, it's for somebody else. Or our pride will say, I know this is about me and how dare he bring that up. That's pride. That's the rebellious pride. And that's the kind of pride we saw from the king and from the country of Israel. He's only picking a fight with me. Verse 8, when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent a message to the king saying, you moron. Why have you torn your clothes? Send him to me, and he'll know there's a prophet in Israel. And how could there be a prophet in Israel? Because there was a God in Israel. It's just a metaphor for he will know who to serve. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. Verse 10, then Elisha sent him a messenger who said, Go wash seven times in the Jordan, and your skin will be restored, and you will be clean. A simple command. Obviously for Naaman, too simple. How could this be the cure? This is stupid, Naaman says and thinks. There's just no way this is how I should be cured. See, we as believers, just like Naaman, we get bogged down in the simple commands. Join your faith family in worship. Read your Bible. Pray. Serve. Give. Tithe. 
We get bogged down in those. Well, I'm busy on this one, and I don't want to give, and I don't like how they're spending the money, and this and that and the other. And we say, I can't do the simple commands. And God says, fine, you don't get the blessings. We want miracles, right? We want Elijah on Mount Carmel. We want the big things. We want the whirlwind and the earthquake and the fire to be when God speaks to us. We're tired of the voice saying, be obedient to me. Just be obedient to me. I'm tired of being obedient. Do a big miracle. Right now in our church, we want a big financial miracle. Instead of just being faithful givers. We're not doing well financially as a church. We've talked about that before. This is nothing new. This is years of reality for us. And we want something to happen big. And we got some blessings. We got paycheck protection money. And we got hurricane uh, loss of income money. And God sustained and provided. And then when it looks like he no longer is, what do we do? We panic and maybe we beg. God, do something big. Let money fall from heaven. Could it be that God is just saying, if you would all just obey the simple commands I have given you, you wouldn't have the problems you have. See, it's our responsibility to be faithful to the commands of God. We want, and I've heard more times than I can count, that we need to get more tithing members in the church. No, we don't need to get more tithing members we need more members to get to tithing. I was telling somebody this week about some of the financial issues we're having, and, and the person jokingly, but not really, said, sounds like you need to preach on tithing. You know, I do preach on tithing every Sunday because I preach the Bible. I preach faithfulness. I preach discipleship. I preach doing what the Bible says. And if I asked you to raise your hands, if you didn't know that the New Testament says to give sacrificially or that the Old Testament says to give so that the church, in their case temple, could function. If I asked everyone who did not know that to raise your hands, I don't think there would be very many of you who wouldn't, or who would rather, raise your hand and say, oh, I didn't know we were supposed to do that. It's a simple command. Years ago, in one church, a, as, as I was leaving, a couple who was quite the leaders in the church, they were, they were leaders financially, they served, they had been in that church for a long time, they were, uh, they were strong, strong believers, people of prayer, as we were going out the door, basically. They made the comment to us, we wish it was the pastor leaving and not you. Well, me too. 
filled me with pride. Made me feel good. And you know what that couple did after we left the church? They did exactly what you're thinking. They stayed. They continued to give to that church just like they always had. They continued to serve that church just like they always had. Maybe more. And they prayed for their pastor that he would be better. And years later, and I don't remember now if it was something that happened in his life that changed him or if it was just a gradual change, we got to sit down and talk with them and I, I brought it up. You, you remember when you said you'd rather have me than him? You remember that? I do. Got it on my wall, framed. We'd rather have you than him. I said, whatever happened to that? What, you know, I'm, I'm thinking they've probably left the church now, and ha-ha, that'll... I said, he changed. We were, we, we just... We just did what we'd always done, and we prayed, and, and God did the work. They were simply obedient. They followed the simple commands. And that church is better than it's ever been. Not just because they stayed, but because the simple commands are the ones that change people, that, that change churches. Naaman gets this simple command, and his response in verses 11 through 13 is a response of blind pride. So what's the difference between rebellious pride and blind pride? The king had rebellious pride. The people of Israel had rebellious pride. They had been fighting against God for years, which is why they're about to, go into, about to be destroyed. Not just go into exile, but be destroyed. They knew who God was, and yet they disobeyed and they fought against him. Naaman knew of God at best, but was just as prideful, but he was blind to who God was and what he was able to do. So his response to go dip in the Jordan seven times was, that's stupid. Why in the world should I do that? Our rivers are better in Damascus. Jordan's just this little muddy thing. I don't want to, what are you talking about? I'm leaving. This is ridiculous. He's saying, I am owed something bigger than this. I am Naaman. I am the commander of the Aramean army. Why did this guy not come out and greet me as I should have been greeted? Do this big, like Elijah on the mountain, right? Calling down fire. Do this big thing and wave his hand. He wants the whole show. But not, Elisha doesn't even come outside. Sends a messenger. Tell him go dip seven times in the Jordan. He'll be clean. God, I am owed something bigger than this. I need a miracle. I don't need a simple command. I need something huge here, not just you saying, continue to follow me and be obedient. That's not what I want to do, God. I am owed something bigger than this. Do you not know who I am? Verse 13. His servants, though, 
approached him and said to him, if, if he had told you to do something huge, you'd have done it, right? It would have made sense. Climb to the tallest mountain in the area, and there on the top of the mountain you will find a bush with one bloom. Pick the one bloom and make tea from the one bloom and pour tea over a, a roasted cow and eat the whole cow. And you, you know, oh, well, okay, that makes sense, right? Because this is God. It's going to be something major. Not this. You'd have done that, right, Naaman? Maybe if you're just simply obedient, maybe if you just have a simple obedience to this simple command, God will do what he's told you he will do. Slaves, again, servants. Don't even know where these people are from. Don't know if they're Jewish slaves or what. Notice he's finding no help not that he probably looked for it, but the, the record doesn't show any help from the people in Israel, in Samaria. Servants. Slaves. How much more should you do it when he only tells you, wash and be clean? Is the Lord not telling us how much more should you do it when he only tells you to be obedient? When he only tells you to go? When he only tells you to tell? When he only tells you to serve? When he only tells you to gather, when he only tells you to read, when he only tells you to pray, when he only tells you to give, how much more should you do it when he only tells you to simply be obedient to the simple commands? And then in verse 14, we see his simple obedience. So Naaman went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times according to the command of the man of God. Then his skin was restored and he became, and became like the skin of a small boy and he was clean. He just simply did what he was told. This, this simple command... God blesses mightily when we are faithful in the small things. We want the tricks. We want the programs. We want the, the, the whatever is going to finally do whatever needs to be done to do the things that we think needs to be done. And God is saying, if you would simply do what I've already told you to do. Parents, we do that with our kids, right? Well, I want to do that, I want to do that. Well, if you just do what I told you to do, or, or, they come running through the house screaming, Mama, Mama, I broke my arm and my neck and my back and my leg and everything. What were you doing? Well, you find out they stubbed their toe. But what were you doing? I was running in the house. And have you been told not to run in the house? Yeah, they don't want to hear it. We don't want to hear it. The children of God don't want to hear God say, Oh man, I have told you what to do. 
and you're shocked when you aren't obedient and things don't work out well. And we should not be shocked that when we are obedient, things work out well. And this isn't blanket coverage. I know we have people who go and tell and serve and give and do all the things and and do more. But God has not called us to be a 2080 church where 20% of the congregation gives 80% of the money or gives 80% of the work. God has called us to be a 100% congregation where 100% of the body gives 100% of the money and does 100% of the work. And pride will say this message isn't for me or he's talking to me and how dare he do that. God blesses when we are simply obedient. But it should not surprise us. Because we're only believers because of Jesus, right? Because of the blood of Jesus. Because of our salvation in him. And let's all, right quickly, list all the things we did to earn our salvation. Nothing. It was simple obedience. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Believe on me and you shall be saved. See, salvation is a simple obedience. Jesus says, as Naaman was told, wash and be clean. Wash in the blood of the Lamb and be clean. And and not even literal washing in blood. Simply figurative. Come to Christ and you will be clean. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Come to Jesus and be clean. You're, you're, You're scandalized by sin. You are destroyed by sin. You are disgustingly covered in sin and because of that you will die but the gift the free offer the simple command is come to Jesus the simple obedience is to turn to him repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation I've got to do more than that because you don't know how bad I've been. No, you don't. Doesn't matter how bad you've been. Doesn't matter how bad your skin disease is. Doesn't matter how much you think you need to do this, some great uh, event in your life, some, some, some scale, some highest peak, whatever you think you need for salvation. You only need Jesus. Come. And take this simple offer. And you have a next step to take. This morning, 
whatever message you have heard today, as a non-believer, as someone who's never trusted Jesus, you may need to accept salvation through Jesus Christ this morning. You want to have a, a greater understanding of that. How can I accept Christ? We pray, we talk about it, but it's just faith. It's just belief. It's something that happens in your heart, not something that happens with your mouth. Though, you confess it with your mouth, as 1 John says. Maybe you accepted Christ and you need to be baptized. We're baptizing next Sunday. Be a little quick to get you in for next Sunday, but we could work it out if you wanted to be baptized next Sunday. You need to follow in obedience. Maybe you need to conform your life to Christ or submit to God's plan and purpose in your life. And that may be the simple obediences that you need to follow, that you need to obey. Simple commands you need to obey. Maybe it's time to join our church, be a part of our fellowship, be part of what God is doing in our community through First Baptist Sulphur. We'd love for you to share that decision with us. You can come forward and let me know. I'll be over here to the right. You can write it on a connection card. You can send it to us by email or messenger if you're watching online, whatever you need to do. But we'd love to celebrate that with you, be a part of that. We'd also love to pray with you. If you'd like to pray, I will be up here to pray with you. If you'd like that, you can just come here to the stage and bring it before the Lord, whatever you need to do. We're going to do that in just a minute. But would you pray with me? right now. Father, thank you. Thank you for Naaman to, to show us the simple obedience, the, the simple obedience from somebody who didn't even know you. And the struggle to be simply obedient because we want something, we want a miracle, and, and you say, just be obedient. Thank you for his example. Thank you for the example of the young servant girl or the other servants who discipled him to the truth. And thank you that the Christian life is simple. Simply obey, and you take care of all the rest. God, I pray this morning that we as a church would simply obey. We would perform the disciplines you have put before us as believers to read and to pray and to gather and to give and to go and to tell, to minister, to love, to show compassion, to show mercy. None of us are surprised by the commands. We just have a tendency not to do them. Lord, work in our hearts, work in this place, that we as believers will commit to following, to being obedient. Work in this place that those who have never trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior will make that step today and follow in simple obedience to believe, to trust, and to know salvation this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we sing this morning, may God do a work on your heart. If you'd like to come forward for prayer, I'll be happy to do that with you. We don't have anybody over here this week, uh, so it's just me. But uh, our 
we may have some deacons in, in the back. Uh, we normally do. They'll be standing at the back door. So let's stand and let's sing and let's let God work on our hearts today. <laughs>